Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Mike. It's good to be with all you. Welcome to Bible Center Church this morning. I'd like to start off this morning with kind of an announcement and a little bit of a celebration. So one of the things we're trying to emphasize this fall is that everyone finds a group. Everyone kind of finds their people in a place where they fit in. So you have closer relationships in our church with other people who know Jesus and love Jesus. Uh, Up to this point, we've had about a 20% increase in the number of people attending our groups on Sundays, which is really fun, so I'm excited about that. Uh, Also, we have new groups coming online all the time, which is something we wanna celebrate and highlight for you so you know about them. Two of them that are newer groups, Uh, One is with Todd and Jane Fowler on Sunday nights. This is a life group that meets in homes. If you're interested in that, all you have to do is go to our website or our app, and you'll see this right there. Click on the bottom and just says, let Todd know you're coming. It's a great way for you to connect to a group. We've also got a group starting right after this with Paul Egg and Jack Witt right up here in one of our rooms. It's a topical study. So if you've been looking for a group that meets right after this service, there's a new one starting Today, we'd love for you to check it out. It's topical, you can be any age. Uh, They're gonna focus on humility first. Uh, The same thing that we're kind of focused on here, humility and unity. So that'd be a great place to check out a new group there as well. So today, our focus is going to be humility and gentleness. So in Ephesians chapter four, the next topic is humility and gentleness. And I promised last week, if you were here, that I would show you some pictures from the vacation, our 25 year anniversary trip that Jen and I took. And the idea of humility really fits in with these pictures. So I felt like it was appropriate. So the first picture is of these two lakes. When we first got there, my wife dealt with some altitude sickness. So it was pretty bad for a couple of days. So I ended up just running through the mountains and taking pictures of things I was seeing. And here's two different lakes that I saw. The first one's called the Lock. It's up in Rocky Mountain National Forest. And the second one is called Mills Lake. And it's crazy as you're running through these mountains, or hiking, you don't have to run, I like running, but as you're hiking through the mountains, um, there's these crazy lakes at 9,000 feet, 11,000 feet, 13,000 feet, and they're gorgeous. And when you look at those things, you just realize how beautiful is the one who made those things. Uh, The next picture is when Jen was feeling a little better. So I got a picture of her and I beside a stream. And that big elk right there was right outside of the place we were staying. So in the mornings, you'd have elk just like kind of walking through the place where we were staying. Big enough that you wouldn't want to mess with them. That guy was about the size of an SUV. I opened the door, stuck my camera out, took a picture. He looked at me. I stepped right back in and shut the door. I felt like that was the best decision to make right there. Uh, Jen started feeling better. So we went to Colorado Springs. We went to this place called the Garden of the Gods. And that's her. And there's these crazy big red rock formations that are just magnificent. So those are kind of behind her, but I caught her sitting there. So there's a picture of her looking at just the mountains in the background. I've got one more picture for you. There was a bigger hike we did. Um, We were kind of in the Aspen area and it's called Electric Pass. And it's called Electric Pass because if you're up there at the wrong time of day, you get struck by lightning. So we made sure that there were no clouds. And then we hiked up there. It was about 13,000, almost 500 feet. And we were basically on top of the mountains, which I've never been that high. Like it was, I'm a little afraid of heights. So I was actually, I think my legs were shaking a little bit when I was up there, just the feeling of it. And when you look out one direction, you see a whole range of mountains on one side. 
And then we turn the other way, there's a whole nother range of mountains on the other side and this beautiful thing called Cathedral Lake and it was gorgeous. But in those moments and throughout those weeks, it just kept hitting me. Who can make something like this? I mean, these are grandiose, they're enormous, they're amazing. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter one, verse 20, that God has revealed himself, his eternal power, his invisible qualities, his divine attributes through what he has made. So as I was seeing these things and as you were seeing these pictures, it's a reminder of how big and great and powerful and majestic our God is. These are just works of his hand and they're just a mere reflection of what he is truly like. In Isaiah 40, 12, it says that he basically can take the mountains and put them on a scale. It's figurative, but that's how big our God is. Like he can just pick these things up and just like he weighs them. That's the God that we serve. In those moments, you're reminded that we are much smaller than he is. So much smaller. So it kind of puts us in a state of humility, a state of really understanding who we are in comparison to our God. So last week, we spent time in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. And we learned that we're supposed to live our life grounded and founded in the gospel, our calling, our salvation. And we're supposed to live our life from there. Uh, we're called to live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Today, part of the way that we do that is by being humble and gentle people. So today we're gonna focus on being humble and gentle. What does that look like? Are there indicators, are there ways of measuring that in our life? And then next week, Dr. John King will come and he's gonna talk about love and patience and you won't want to miss that. This morning, we're gonna do a couple things. We're gonna define some terms. Then we're gonna look at some examples, looking at the life of Jesus. And then we're gonna look at some indicators. How do we judge how we're doing? How do we grow in humility? How do we have a pathway forward to grow in gentleness? Those are things that sometimes we don't push or talk about or call each other on when we're not gentle or not humble. But this morning, I think we need to do that a little bit. So in Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two, let's look at the text and let's see our, our verse in context of the verse that comes before. Uh, here's the last week's verse. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, beseech you, encourage you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling, the gospel, your salvation with which you've been called with all humility and all gentleness. So you can't live in a manner worthy of the gospel without humility and gentleness. Those are like necessary components to what Paul is calling us to, what God is calling us to. As you spend time in the book of Colossians, one thing you'll notice is that Ephesians and Colossians are like sister letters. In fact, they're called sister letters. Oftentimes, Paul would say the same thing in Colossians they said in Ephesians in just a different way. And he sent those letters out about the same time while he was imprisoned. And in Colossians 3.12 is a similar verse where he talks about the same thing. And he says in Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen by God, those who are in the gospel, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are the exact same words being used in Ephesians. So here's just another call to it. Like we're called to be those things in Ephesians. And then in Colossians, we're called to kind of put those things on, that there's some action to it. Like if I'm not that way, 
I'm called to become more that way, putting those characteristics on in the way I function, act, and think. So let's define some terms. When the Bible says humility, what does it mean? A way of defining humility would be lowliness of mind or having a right estimation of ourselves, a real, from God's perspective, estimation of ourselves. Humility is not humiliation. Those are not the same things. Humility is simply knowing who we really are in light of God, his world, and his plan. That's humility, a right perspective. Uh, in chapter four, verse one, we're given the right context and the right perspective. We realize that we are who we are because of the salvation we've been given. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift given to us. So none of us walk into heaven patting ourselves on the back saying, yeah, I did a nice job, I earned this. No one walks into heaven that way. All of us walk into heaven overwhelmed by the grace we've been given. It's part of this right estimation of ourselves. Jesus calls himself humble and lowly in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. Jesus is described that way. We're called to be like Jesus. We walk in his footsteps and hopefully we walk in his humility. The gospel teaches us some very important things about estimating ourselves correctly. When you first placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you had some knowledge of God's holiness how truly set apart he is, how he's morally perfect in every way. And you also had some sense of your sinfulness, the ways where you've morally wronged God, rebelled against God. So there's some level of understanding also how you are different from God. So as you grow as a Christian, you continue to understand his holiness more and more, and you understand your sinfulness more and more. So it creates this growing crescendo of distance that you begin to understand as you mature as a Christian. Like, he is so holy. And for us as Christians, even our intentions sometimes are mixed. We might do the right thing for the wrong reason and still that's considered sin. The Bible looks at your good deeds and my good deeds and God says they're like filthy rags in comparison to my holiness. So we never achieve approval or access to God because we do a really good job. That gap is only filled by the work of Jesus. Only by the work of Jesus. We talked about that last week. No one walks in better than someone else. It's always because of Jesus. And what that does is it gives us a right estimation of ourselves. Gentleness. If you go to an older translation, sometimes the word gentleness is translated meekness. And Commentators would agree, and I, I would say the same thing. Meekness in today's terms oftentimes references like a weakness, meek, weak. And that's not at all what gentleness is. Gentleness is not weakness. What it refers to is a self-controlled and tempered spirit that can walk into a very difficult situation, a very difficult relationship, and you just have some groundedness to you. And you can speak with intentionality and kindness not being overly exuberant or not being flat, but you kind of walk in in an appropriate way. You're self-controlled and tempered. That's what gentleness looks like. It's a fruit of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is intentionally building in you and producing through you more and more gentleness. Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10.1 
is described as being gentle. He's humble and he's gentle. Gentleness is not a form of self-depreciation at all. You don't, I don't want you to think if I'm being gentle, I'm kind of like making myself small. That's not what gentle means. It's not self-depreciation. It's a form of godliness. It's being more like Jesus. This is not doormat mentality. Being gentle doesn't mean you let people walk over you. If you watched Jesus who was gentle, no one walked over Jesus, ever. He knew how to stand his ground. He knew when to be firm and when to be kind and bring his voice down. He knew who he was talking to, what he had to say. He was self-controlled and he was tempered. He was gentle. And something we're gonna see as we go through the text is we will see that the ultimate expression of humility and gentleness is our love for others. Humility and gentleness comes so much from our perspective of understanding who we are in light of who God is. But then when it comes to how we live it out with others, it oftentimes looks like love, others-centeredness, willing to give up some of my stuff for the sake of other people. So that's how it's going to express itself. And we're gonna see that in the text. Let's go to some examples of humility and gentleness. But before we jump into the example, let's just do a little self-examination of ourselves. Here's some things for you to think about for you. And I want this to be an honest evaluation of yourself. When you're around someone who's hurting, someone who's having a hard time, someone who just has some incredible need in the moment, in their life, in a situation, how do you typically respond to that person? How do you typically respond to that person? Do you lean in to the situation? Do you lean out of the situation? Do you withdraw? Do you ask questions? Do you listen? Do you empathize? When there's people around you hurting, how do you respond? Do you help them see that their pain is because they made a bad decision, you kind of correct them to show them how to do a better job next time? When someone shares their pain and how they're hurting, do you kind of make it about you and talk about how you've been through something similar and how you've had it worse than they have to try to make them feel better? When someone around you is hurting, do you avoid them? Do you make something for them? Do you buy them something? Do you show compassion? Do you lean in, give them a hug? Are you willing to weep? How you answer that for yourself tells you a little bit about where you are when it comes to humility and gentleness. Someone who's humble and gentle is typically gonna lean in. And they're not gonna love the person based upon what makes them feel most comfortable. They're gonna love them based upon what they need. And you and I do whatever is necessary to take care of them in the moment regardless of preference. Our example today is gonna to be from John chapter 11. So if you have your Bible with you, you might wanna to turn to John chapter 11. Uh, we're gonna look at Jesus and how he cares for Mary and Martha. We're gonna see humility and gentleness in action in the form of this incredible others-centered love. Lazarus has died. Lazarus was Mary and Martha's brother. And we're gonna learn that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he cared about them. And he goes into action when he finds out that they are hurting. Chapter 11, verses three through five. It says, so the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love 
is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then John, the author, puts this in, verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Notice what they say to Jesus. The sisters say to Jesus, the one you love is sick. Like they know Jesus cares about Lazarus. And then John goes out of his way to say, you know what? Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha and he loved Lazarus. He loved all the siblings in this family. Now we know Jesus loves everyone. We know that. But there was something unique here. Every time somebody died or passed away, Jesus didn't stop everything he was doing, go to their hometown, spend time with them, and raise that person from the dead. There's a uniqueness to this story, this moment, and this relationship. It's just, it's good to know Jesus had friends. That's what we're learning here. Jesus had people that he cared about uniquely, that knew Jesus and he knew them. He had his, he had his group, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was a part of that set of relationships. Verses seven, eight, and then verse 16. We learn that he risks his life to go back to Bethany, where the siblings are. It says, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and yet you're gonna go there again? Like they want to kill Jesus in Bethany. And Jesus is saying, hey, we should go to Bethany. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who is also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. The disciples were fully aware of the danger that Jesus was discussing, describing, and suggesting in going back to Bethany. Jesus is just like, they're hurting, I'm going. So the disciples go with him, knowing that they too may also risk and lose their lives to be with Jesus, going to love Mary, Martha, and figure out what to do with Lazarus. So often for us, it's easy for us to put our things first, our stuff first, our schedule first, our priorities first. Jesus kind of puts everything down and goes to take care of those that he cares about. In humility, he puts their needs above his needs. Jesus is in his full public ministry right now. He could be spending time with thousands of people every single day. And he says no to the thousands to spend time with the two the three, the four, to love them well in a moment of need. Jesus could be building his public ministry, but instead he has this very private moment with these people that he loves and he cares for. He puts aside the public for the personal. Here we see Jesus on his way and Martha goes to meet Jesus, verse 21. And as you listen to this interaction between Martha and Jesus, remember Martha's brother just died. Martha wished Jesus was there. Jesus wasn't there when Lazarus died. And Martha, who's probably grieving, but has her own distinct personality type, is interacting with Jesus. Jesus is watching, he's listening, and listen how he interacts with Martha. It says, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said back to Jesus, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, 
I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. So Martha meets with Jesus first. And what I want you to notice about Martha is what she needs in the moment is to talk about it. She needs some confirmation. She needs the ability to talk with Jesus about what's going on, why is this happening? And Jesus stops, looks at her and has the conversation. He builds her faith, he encourages her. He has the discussion that Martha needs in that moment. Jesus answers her questions. He gives her explanation. Jesus builds her faith. That's what Martha needed in that moment. Martha then goes to Mary and says, basically, Mary, the, the teacher is waiting for you. And Mary, according to scripture, gets up and runs out of the house. The people there assume that she's running to the grave. Some of them follow her. And in verse 32, Mary meets Jesus. She will use the exact same words that Martha does at the beginning, but notice that she's physically doing something different. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha comes up, stands in front of Jesus and says those same words. Mary comes up and just goes to the ground and says those words. Therefore, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who came also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how much he loved him, how much Jesus loved Lazarus. So Mary says the same thing, if you had been here, but Mary is overwhelmed with grief. Martha seems to be more the one who wants to understand. She's a little bit more of a head person. She wants to put the pieces together and Mary's okay just kind of falling apart. And in those moments, I want you to notice that Jesus knew exactly how to take care of Martha and they knew how to take care of Mary. Yes, it helps that he's the son of God, but he's also in the moment and he's paying attention. He's trying to assess what Martha needs. And then he loves Martha where Martha's at. Then he spends time with Mary who comes to him very differently. And he listens to her and he's present with her and he meets Mary where she's at with what she needs. Martha needs a conversation. Martha sought to have her faith confirmed by Jesus. What we see here in Jesus is that humility is not having an agenda with others. Humility is simply being present with others, hearing, listening, finding out what they need, and then stepping in, putting the other person first. Humility, Jesus does that. Mary, she didn't need a conversation. Mary didn't want a discussion. Mary just wanted Jesus. Mary just wanted his presence. Mary just wanted his tears. And what does Jesus do? He stops, he pays attention, and he feels it. Jesus joins her with tears and provides for her comfort. We see gentleness in Jesus, this temperament, this presence, this intentionality. Gentleness is loving others the way they need to be loved. Gentleness is loving others the way they need to be loved. Not the way you would prefer to love them. 
There are certain things that we feel more comfortable about. And so often when someone's hurting, I want to do the thing that makes me feel comfortable. I don't want to get too out there. You know, like when you're skiing, you don't want to get too far over your skis, like, because you're afraid you're going to wipe out and lose control. But sometimes people just need you to weep with them. Sometimes they need a hug. And some of you are huggers and you give hugs for absolutely no reason. I've met you. I know you. Sometimes after service, I get caught by you. I'm not so much a hugger, but the reality is that sometimes we need to love people, even with physical touch, whatever it takes to take care of that person. Gentleness is never self-serving. It's never me first. It's about providing comfort for another. It's not about my personal boundaries all the time. It's about the greatest need that's sitting right in front of you and sitting in front of me. So Jesus truly sees Mary and Jesus truly sees her needs. He is fully present with her, with gentleness, kindness, compassion, with tears. He's just what he needs to be to love Mary well. It's so easy for us. Like, I'm, gosh, I'm imagining myself in that moment. Like that moment makes me, I'll be honest, if, when that type of thing happens, anxiety kind of builds up in me because I don't know what to do. Am I going to be enough to help this person? Am I going to be able to say the right words? So it's very easy for me to sidestep the situation. Instead of stepping into the pain with the person, instead of stepping into the moment and starting to have the conversation or put my arm around the person, oh, it's just everything in me wants to withdraw a little bit. So for you and me, whatever your thing is, maybe your thing is to kind of correct them. Maybe your thing is to tell a story about you. Maybe it's to pretend like you didn't notice they were hurting. Whatever it is, we need to look more like Jesus and less like our tendencies. To look like Jesus here, you don't sidestep it, you step into it. And sometimes you're gonna have to feel the pain with them. You can't go through this life in humility and gentleness and avoid pain. The pain of others will be sometimes become your pain too, as you love and you step in like Jesus. We see Jesus's humility and gentleness in his love, putting others first, which means we can't stand at a distance. We have to step into the moment. We have to enter in, even if it means we feel some of the pain of the other person. It's what we do. It's what Jesus did. We do it. And yeah, sometimes you're gonna get over your skis and tumble down the mountain, but it's not about you, it's about them, so it's okay. A way where this kind of plays out sometimes is as parents. So as parents, so often our first tendency with our kids is to correct them. Before we truly understand what's going on with our child, we just kind of jump in and we're like, we correct an action, we correct a perspective, we correct an attitude. I, I know, I've been there. I'm, I'm the one who does this sometimes with my kids. So it's really easy to jump in that way. And there's a need for correction, but in humility and gentleness, how powerful would it be to first seek to understand what's going on in the life of your child, in their head, in their heart? What happened to them that day for them to act the way that they did? When you enter into a relationship with your child like that, then direction, correction, and clarification is received very differently from them. If you just come down hard on your kids without relationship, without compassion, without humility and gentleness, you will sometimes damage your kids and damage your relationship with your kids. Some of you know, some of you are still in relationships right now that are damaged because we just were so hard without being gentle or understanding. 
But if you can provide a relationship with your kids and your grandkids where they know you love them, you seek to understand them, you step into their pain with them, and then you provide some correction, then you provide some direction, what just happened is you are healing them, you're growing them, you're connecting with them. They want to be with you, they seek your counsel, they're not afraid of your presence, they actually run into your presence because in your presence they find wisdom matched with humility, gentleness, and love. So as they age and become adults, you are friends, Lord willing, because of the environment that you've created as a parent. In the most painful moment of their lives, Martha and Mary each needed something completely different from Jesus. And Jesus steps in with humility and gentleness and meets their needs right where they are. Indicators of growth in humility and gentleness. Can we measure how we're doing in these areas? I'm gonna throw out some suggestions. Um, you can measure some things very specifically. When it comes to gentleness, I've been on a road of trying to grow in gentleness for a very long time. I remember back in college, I was a sophomore, Jen was a freshman, we went to Bowling Green State University. Um, I remember going and talking to her in her dorm room, I sat on her bed, and I sat on one of her stuffed animals. Um, she had stuff, it wasn't exactly like that, but I sat on something like that on the screen. So I sat on the stuffed animal, and Jen looked at me and she said, would you get off of the stuffed animal? Well, I thought, and with all of my 19-year-old wisdom, I thought, I'm gonna take this moment to teach my girlfriend something. This is an inanimate object. This doesn't have feelings. It doesn't know I'm sitting on it. It's not any different than sitting on the bed, the pillow, or on the chair. Sitting on the stuffed animal is the same thing. And to have an emotional connection to it that makes you respond that way is strange, is weird, doesn't need to be there. So I pull them out and I'm like, I'm gonna teach her something. I said, it's not a big deal if I sit on this. It doesn't know I'm sitting on it. It's a stuffed animal. I go, watch. <laughs> and I banged his head on the wall. <clears throat> and um, had those little like plastic eyes. So like when it hit the wall, it made like a crack noise. Like it actually felt much more violent than I intended it to. But I cracked it on the wall. And she looked at me and like her face just kind of turned sideways. Like, what are you doing? And I thought, I think I'm almost there. I think she's almost learned a little lesson today. So I, I cracked it one more time against the wall. The second time I did it, she just starts bawling. And in that moment, I realized that there was no lesson here that I was teaching, that I was a, I was a buffoon. Like, I, was, I had no idea what I was doing. And I just looked at her and I said, I am so sorry. I have no idea what I'm doing. I put it down, okay? Because in that moment, I thought in arrogance that I had something to teach her. And there was no gentleness at all. I didn't ask her why she felt the way she felt. I didn't pursue her. I'm just like, I'm gonna jump into correction. I started banging stuffed animals against the wall, thinking that I'm helping my girlfriend out. So in terms of indicators, I've gone, our family has gone 28 years without any other stuffed animals being damaged, hurt, or harmed. So that's, there's some progress, but I'm nowhere near done. I mean, 25 years from now, there's still so much gentleness that needs to be built in to me. What we're gonna look at as an example of humility and gentleness in terms of indicators is Mary's response to Jesus. Mary's response to Jesus. Mary raises Lazarus from the dead. How does Mary respond? John 12, it says, therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. That's where the miracle happened, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made Jesus dinner there and Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of the people reclining at the table. It was Lazarus, probably the family, some of the disciples were there at the table. Mary, 
then took a pound of very expensive perfume, likely a year's salary worth of perfume, pure nard, and anointed Jesus' feet in front of everyone, and then wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance and perfume. What we see in Mary, in the way she responds to Jesus, is humility and, in humility and gentleness, we must love others and put them first. Humility and gentleness looks like love, sometimes extravagant love, sometimes self-sacrificing love, but it puts others first. Some indicators. The first thing we see in Mary, in humility, Mary did not care about her image. In that moment when she was loving Jesus, she was not concerned about her image. Her love for Jesus was of greater concern than what others might've thought about her. What do you think her hair looked like when she was done? I mean, she washed, I mean, this was like, she didn't pull off Jesus's Nikes, right? I mean, these are sandals, these are dirty feet. I mean, her hair was probably going every direction, probably looked like a dirty mop. And you know what? She didn't care. It wasn't about that. It wasn't what stopped her. For us, how often do we stop, pause, or overthink before we make a decision to love someone? How often are we concerned about what others might think before we just simply reach out in love and take care of someone? That pause is dangerous. Mary here had no pause. So our first indicator of how we're doing is this. We freely express love regardless of the impact on our image. We just freely express the love. We don't stop and pause and think, how's this gonna affect the way people view me? We just love freely and with energy. The object of our love becomes more important than how people would view us. That's humility. The second thing we see in Mary is she didn't care about cost. Her love for Jesus was greater than her love for things in this world. She likely poured a year's salary worth of perfume on Jesus' feet. Say you make $75,000 a year. It'd be like you walking in just putting $75,000 of something on Jesus' feet and being completely fine with it. Like that's where Mary was. Some of the guys around the room when she did that were like, she's so wasteful. She only cared about Jesus. She was not concerned about herself. She wasn't concerned of what it might cost her. She did not do a cost analysis of the situation. We do it all the time. For me to love this person in a way that's necessary for them to really be taken care of, it, it, might, it might cost me something. I don't know if I wanna pay that. I don't know if I wanna risk that. In our love, we have to remove cost analysis. We love aggressively. We love with all our heart. The second indicator is, do we love self-sacrificially regardless of cost? Do we love self-sacrificially regardless of cost? Do we love freely, not being worried about our image? And do we love self-sacrificially, not concerned about the cost? The third thing we see in her is we see she didn't care about her image, she didn't care about the cost, and she didn't care about the consequence. Her desire to express her love for Jesus was greater than anything that might have been said to her or could have happened to her. Likely, this room is filled with men in a culture where men dominated. She walks in as a woman and does this to Jesus. This would have been a thing. There could have been consequence. She knew it was possible that she would have been criticized, disrespected, excluded, repulsed. 
Like, she knew that that was a risk, and she didn't care. The consequence didn't stop her. The consequence didn't impede her. The consequence didn't even slow her down. It was all about Jesus and her love for Jesus, humility and gentleness being expressed in love towards him. For Mary, Jesus raised her brother from the dead, and she was overwhelmed by his kindness and responded with love. For you and me, remember that crescendo we talked about? We stand there realizing there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. There's nothing we can do. Maybe Jesus didn't raise your brother from the dead, but he died on a cross in your place. Because that was the only way to bridge the gap. It's the only way that we can have access to God is if he dies in our place and gives us grace so that we can do so. He has expressed incredible love to us. He expressed love to Mary and even greater love to you and me. She responds by not caring about image, not caring about cost, not caring about consequence. How do you and I respond? At the foot of the cross, realizing the grace and love we've been given. The final indicator is this, we fearlessly love others with the love we have received. We fearlessly love others with the love we have received. All of this reminds me of an old hymn. The lyrics go this way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Our image, the cost, the consequence grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We become humble and gentle people who love with all of our heart as we get to know Jesus and live like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We want to reflect what you've taught us in Ephesians chapter four. May we live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel with humility and with gentleness. And Jesus, you are those things and you demonstrated those things. May we live like you. May we live with expressive love, fearless love, self-sacrificing love, reflecting the love that you have so generously given to us. We can't do that on our own. So we ask that you would invade our lives and our hearts and change us that we would live like that. May it be so clear that your love is in us and coming out through us, that this city, this community, this valley would know the difference and know you as Savior. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.